morning, church. It's good to be with you all today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be continuing our series through the book of Exodus today, looking at chapters 3 and 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one on the seat in front of you. You can find this passage on page 46. Just look for the big number 3, and that's where we're going to be starting today. You know, there's been a lot of talk over the last few years about imposter syndrome. And if you're, I I hear an amen, because we all have seen these kinds of people at work, right? Uh, If you're not familiar, imposter syndrome is the feeling we get, usually at work, uh, sometimes at school, uh, when you doubt your skills or your qualifications or your background and your talents so much so that you start to feel like an imposter and you live under this constant fear that you're going to be exposed. And the reason that so many people have been talking about imposter syndrome over the last few years is because we don't want to feel this way anymore. We want to have confidence in our abilities at work. We don't want to live in fear at work. And while I think it is important to talk about things like imposter syndrome, we've all worked with people who actually are imposters. And they're like, man, I really hope they feel that. Uh, Someone who actually is in over their head and has no idea what they're doing. But I think that the real problem is that we ourselves are imposters more often than we care to admit. The opposite of imposter syndrome is hubris, an excessive pride in your own abilities, which is completely misplaced because you're actually not as great as you think you are. And this kind of pride can infect every area of our lives, including our relationship with God. Many of us approach God with this kind of excessive self-confidence that is actually destroying our relationship with him. We show that prideful attitude when we rush into our days without prayer as if we don't need God to hold us every second of every day. We show that prideful attitude when we're content to live in sin as if we know what's good and bad better than God does. We show that prideful attitude when we compare ourselves to others and we think that we're good because we're better than they are, as if we can do any good apart from God. And while the world preaches a message about self-confidence and self-esteem, the Bible preaches a radically different message, that we have no good in ourselves and so we are completely dependent on God. You see, Christianity is not a religion for the morally strong people who can clean themselves up. Christianity is salvation for weak, foolish sinners who are complete messes. Friends, you don't have to clean yourselves up to come to God this morning because you could never clean yourself up enough to come to God this morning. And so this morning, I have a really encouraging message for you. I want to completely demolish your self-confidence so that you can find a better confidence in the glories and the greatness of God himself. Today, we're going to see God intervene in the life of a weak, foolish sinner named Moses. And he's going to use Moses to do some pretty astounding things. And while Moses is a great man that we can learn a lot from, 
He's not the hero of the story, as we will see today. Because apart from God, Moses was a weak sinner, just like me and just like you. The main idea that I want you to draw out of this true story from the life of Moses is that the great God uses puny people like us for his purposes in the world. The great God uses puny people like us for his purposes in the world. So do you want to make a difference in the world or in your own life? Well, God wants to use you and God wants to transform you, but your only hope is that he would do all the work. And at the same time, are you feeling discouraged? Are you feeling weak, maybe even worthless? Have you been betrayed? Have you experienced suffering? Well, friends, in the midst of the worst of your sin and the nastiest of your suffering and the biggest of your weaknesses, God is not silently condemning you. He sees you at your worst and he is calling you to himself. And he has the power to transform you for his glory, to use your pain for his purposes in the world. God has not given up on you, and he never will. The great God uses puny people like us for his purposes in the world. Are you ready to dig in? Amen. Uh, So we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Exodus chapter 3. God, you are great and you are mighty. I pray that you would demolish our self-confidence today and build us up with confidence in you and in your glories and in your greatness and in your holiness. God, would you amaze us at your faithfulness and at your wonders and at your self-sufficiency. And would we realize how little and small and needy we are and fall completely dependent on you. God, we need you. Would you glorify yourself today? Amen. So to remind you of the story so far, God's people, the nation of Israel, are enslaved in Egypt, and Moses, one of them, is hiding out in the wilderness after killing an Egyptian and fleeing from the law. And while he's in the wilderness, he marries a woman named Zipporah, and he works with her dad, Jethro, as a shepherd. And it's in the midst of this messy desert situation that God intervenes in the life of this puny person, Moses. Our story today will unfold in three major scenes. Number one, God is a perfect promise keeper. Number two, God works on his wimpy worker. And number three, God saves his sinful son. So first, God is a perfect promise keeper. Let's start reading in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and it was not consumed. Now that doesn't happen every day. Moses is minding his own business in the wilderness, and all of a sudden he sees this bush that's engulfed in flames, but it's not burning up. And what's even more unusual, there seems to be some kind of figure standing in the midst of the bush. And he's called the angel of the Lord. 
And the angel of the Lord's a mysterious figure who appears at least 18 times throughout the Old Testament, probably a few more. And if we read each of those accounts carefully, we see that the angel of the Lord is no mere angel. This is God himself. We'll even see here in this passage that seamlessly Moses trans translates from calling him the angel of the Lord to calling him the Lord and calling him God. So he's called the angel of the Lord here, not because he's an angel, but because he's appearing to Moses in an angel-like, human-like, but non-human, glorious body. He's appearing physically before Moses. He's doing that to say a pretty important message. So let's see what happens next in verse 3. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So why is the bush on fire? And why on earth does Moses have to take his shoes off? Well, these are both pictures of God's holiness. God's holiness means two things. It means that he is completely distinct from everything that he has created. And number two, it means that he is absolutely free from any impurity. So first, he is absolutely distinct from everything that he has created because he is the creator well, everything else is created. So that means that God alone is self-sufficient. God alone has no beginning. God alone reigns supreme over all of the angels, heaven and earth, all things seen and unseen. God alone is all-powerful. And the fire that surrounded the bush is a picture of this because Moses couldn't get too close without getting burned. God is holy. He's distinct from everything that he has created. And number two, God's holiness also means that he is absolutely free from any impurity. There is no evil or wickedness or shortcomings or maladjustment in God. He is perfectly good and never evil at all times and in every circumstance. And the fire that surrounded the bush is a picture of this because fire purifies. If you drop gold into a fire, all of the impurities from that gold will melt away. But the God who stands in the midst of this fire is not consumed because he has no impurities to melt away. He is holy, holy, holy. Some people talk about God as if he's an interesting idea that they can think about when it's convenient, probably alongside of other religious theories. Some people talk about God as if he's just a hobby that they think about on Sunday, maybe a couple times throughout the week, but he doesn't actually impact a majority of their lives Monday through Saturday. Friends, this holy God is not an interesting philosophy or a hobby or a habit. He is a consuming fire, and he will destroy your sin. He demands your total allegiance. We don't play with fire, and we don't play with God. We stand in awe of him. And as the story continues, this infinitely holy God, who is distinct from everything that he has created, shows that he is not distant from anything that he has created. 
Exodus 3.6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The infinitely holy God is distinct from his people, but he is not distant from his people. He is greater than they are, and he hears their cries. He is almighty, and he sees their suffering. He is merciful and mighty. He understands their pain. And do you know that that's true of you today? If you think that there is no one who understands your suffering, that no one cares about you, I can tell you with complete certainty that there is one who knows the worst of your suffering and the worst of your sin, and he does care. And he loves you with a perfect love, and he's ready to guide you with perfect wisdom. This holy God is distinct from you, but he is not distant from you today. Amen. He is distinct from you, but he is not distant from you today. And notice in verse 6 how this holy God identifies himself. He calls himself the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God identifies himself by his relationship with Moses, his great-great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham. The same Abraham that God had made a promise to almost 600 years earlier. That his people would grow and would be delivered into the promised land. So God is not acting randomly here, just kind of willy-nilly deciding like, oh, the Israelites, they look like they could use some help. I'll probably get them out of slavery today. No, he's acting with a very distinct purpose to rescue his people. They're not just a random people, they're his people. He is doing what he has always planned and what he has always promised to do. God had promised Abraham that he would have many offspring and that they would live in the promised land, and God will certainly do it. God even says, you will worship God on this mountain. Mark it down, Moses. It's going to happen. It's certain. This great God is a perfect promise keeper. He is perfectly holy, distinct from everything that he has created, and he is absolutely free from any impurity, and he is merciful. He sees your suffering, and he cares, and he always keeps his promises. He always does exactly what he says. He always accomplishes his purposes. And he will never forget his people. Now this is an awesome God, right? And this great God wants to do some great work through Moses. So it, it follows that Moses must be a pretty great guy, right? Well, story goes on to reveal that God's chosen worker needs some work. 
That's our second scene. God works on his wimpy worker. He's a bit of a fixer-upper. The passage goes on for 29 more verses as Moses gives God a reason that he can't do the work, and then God responds. And you might expect God to tell Moses, like, no, you're not that bad. You can handle it. You can do it, slugger. Go get him. (laughs) But that's not how God responds at all. He doesn't correct Moses' poor self-esteem. He doesn't ignore Moses' weaknesses, but he explains why Moses' weaknesses are not an obstacle. Not because they aren't real, but because God's strength is bigger than all of Moses' weaknesses. So even working out of the massive deficit of Moses' weaknesses, God's strength is more than capable to accomplish his purposes. This great God will accomplish his purposes, and he will do it through puny people like us. So the point of this story is not how great Moses is or about how great we are. The point of it is that you and me and Moses, all of us are weak, but that our weakness won't stop God from accomplishing his purposes through us. Not because we're strong, but because he is strong. So as we read the rest of this passage, notice how God never corrects Moses. He just explains how he will provide, how he will do the rescuing. So first, Moses very rightly doubts his own power, and God promises his presence. But Moses said to God, verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and I shall be the sign for you that I I have sent you. When you have brought this people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. So again, God doesn't say, nah, you can do it. Go get him. Knock him dead. God says, I will be with you. I will do the rescuing. I will keep my promises. Mark it down. You will worship God on this mountain. By the way, that happens. We'll see that later on. But it goes on. Moses doubts his own authority and his own reception. And God promises his perfect promise-keeping power. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So again, Moses does not hope in his own authority or power, but in God's perfect promise-keeping power. And again, he is the God of Abraham who makes promises and keeps them. And God calls himself here the I am who I am. So what is God? He is. He is the most real thing in the entire universe. Everything and everyone around us is created except for God. He has always been. So if you could look forward into the future, billions and billions and billions and billions of years, God is. And if you could look backwards in time, even before history started, before there was time to count, God is. 
He has no beginning. He has always been. He will never have an end. He will always be. Everything in this universe is created. It has a beginning. God has no beginning, and therefore he is the I am. He is. He has infinite power and infinite wisdom. He has no weakness, and he never fails to accomplish his purposes and to rescue his people because he is God. He is the great I am. And in the rest of chapter 3, God sends Moses to the elders of Israel to share this message with him that the perfect promise-keeping God has appeared and promised to save them from slavery. And Moses continues to doubt, even into chapter 4. He doesn't believe that the people will believe him, that God has appeared to him. So God gives him some incredible wonder-working signs that actually foreshadow events that come later in the book of Exodus. So we'll come to them in a couple weeks. But for now, even after receiving these wonder-working signs, Moses still doubts. And he moves from questioning the people's response to questioning his own abilities. Chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So again, Moses doubts his own abilities. And God doesn't say, No, Moses, you can do it. He says, Moses, you don't have the power to do it, but I do. So believe not in yourself, but believe in me. The God who made all things has the ability to accomplish his purposes. And the same is true today. You might think that you're not good enough or smart enough or eloquent enough or persuasive enough to share your faith with non-believers. Friends, you are not good enough or smart enough or, or convincing enough. But God is, and he will be your mouth. And God shows his power to provide by offering Moses a helper. He sends Moses' brother Aaron with him to help with the public speaking. God's chosen worker needs some work. Again and again, Moses has stated all of the reasons why he cannot fulfill God's plan. And again and again, God responds to show Moses the reasons that he can do it. Not because of Moses' ability, but because of God's ability. The great God uses puny people like us for his purposes in the world. Understanding your own weaknesses is the, is the only starting point for being used of God. God is not looking for self-confident people who can do it on their own. He is looking for God-confident people who know that they cannot do anything good apart from him. This is always the way God works. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God works through weak, wimpy people 
like me and you and Moses, so that he will get the glory. Because it will be so painfully obvious that the success couldn't have come from his weak servants. It had to come from God. And in this story, God is calling Moses to deliver the people of Israel out of bondage to slavery. And we too are enslaved, not to the Egyptians, but to our own sin. You cannot set yourselves free from sin any more than Moses could set himself free from Egypt because you are enslaved to it. This doesn't mean that you're as bad as you possibly could be or that you can never do anything good, but rather that sin has infected every area of your life. Your body, your will, your soul, your heart, your eyes, your mind, all of it is totally corrupt so that you can do nothing good on your own to please God. You don't have the ability to start a relationship with God. You cannot believe in God unless he changes your heart and gives you the gift of faith. And we're hoping that some of you will have your eyes opened today. You don't have the ability to start a relationship with God on your own. You also don't have the ability to grow in your relationship with God on your own. You cannot fight sin unless God himself gives you the power to do it. Look at Titus 2, 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So God's grace brings salvation. What's that salvation look like? He goes on to describe it. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace his free grace is the power to reject what is bad and to choose what is good. God wants to deliver you from the power of grace, from the power of sin, through the power of his grace. And in this process, we are completely dependent on God. But God does call us, brothers and sisters, to discipline ourselves for godliness, to fight sin. So we do have a role to play, but we can't do it on our own. We have to depend on God for the power to fight sin and live in holiness. So what does that look like every day? Let me give you just one practical step that you can take today. When you're faced with temptation, cry out to God in your heart, Lord Jesus, help me. Just those simple four words. And God will give you the power to fight sin and love holiness. When your coworkers are complaining about the boss who has imposter syndrome or needs imposter syndrome and you're tempted to join in, cry out to God in prayer, Son of David, have mercy on me. And God will give you the power to fight sin and love holiness. When your spouse does something that bothers you and you're tempted to snap in anger, cry out to God in prayer, God, help me to love my spouse as you have loved me. And God will give you the power to fight sin and love holiness. Make a habit of praying short, simple prayers like that throughout the day. When you're feeling exhausted and someone asks for help and you don't want to do it, cry out to God in prayer, Holy Spirit, give me the power to serve. And God will give you the power to fight sin and love holiness. If you are a Christian and you pray like that, I promise that you will grow in holiness and you will become more like God if you pray those prayers in faith. God does not do the work for us, but he empowers us to do the work. The great God 
uses puny people like us for his purposes in the world. He is more than capable of empowering you to fight sin, to live in holiness, and even to share your faith with others. Because Moses was not merely trying to deliver himself from slavery to sin. He was trying to deliver an entire people, an entire nation out of slavery to sin. And like we said earlier, the God who makes all mouths has promised to give you the words to say. The great God uses puny people like us for his purposes in the world. We have one more scene to cover today. Scene three, God saves his sinful son. So Moses gathers up his wife and his sons, and in great faith, he travels back to Egypt on God's mission to set his people free. But an interesting scene happens while they're on the way. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, reminder, that's Moses' wife, Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So in the middle of the night, God shows up at Moses' hotel room and he intends to kill either Moses or Moses' son. The text isn't clear about who God's intended target was. But the point is that the holy God is on the move to judge. And God's wrath is turned away when Zipporah, Moses' wife, circumcises their son and spreads the blood over him. And then she says an interesting line, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And that line is actually most likely taken from a ritual circumcision ceremony that she would have seen her father Jethro perform. Do you remember from chapter 3, verse 1, who Jethro was? Zipporah's father, Moses' father-in-law? He was the priest of Midian. So Zipporah probably would have seen her father do many different rituals, including a ritual circumcision ceremony. And this line, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, was most likely a line taken right from that circumcision ceremony. So just like a bridegroom becomes a member of a family through a marriage covenant, this ritual phrase declares that this boy has become a member of God's covenant family through the act of circumcision. Now, why does circumcision matter to Moses' family? Well, remember, this is the God of Abraham. And he has pro- he's promised to keep the promises that he made to Abraham. And throughout the book of Genesis, God promised to deliver Abraham's children. And in Genesis 17, God offers circumcision as the mark of who is a child of Abraham and who is not. So like a wedding ring signifies a spouse's devotion to their marriage covenant, circumcision was a picture that Abraham's children were devoted to their covenant with God. So by not circumcising his son, Moses was placing him outside of the covenant family. And that's going to have some massive consequences because it's God's son, Israel, the sons of Abraham, that would be spared from the plagues. 
It's God's son who would be delivered out of Egypt. Look at verses 21 through 23. Right before this interesting midnight circumcision, this is how the author of Exodus, Moses, sets the scene. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my, my what? My firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So there is a distinction between those who are in God's people and those who are outside of God's people. And God's plan is to judge Egypt and save Israel, to save his son. And according to Genesis 17, circumcision is the mark of who is God's son and who is not. So if Moses' son isn't circumcised, he has no claim in the covenant community. He is not God's son. He is not a part of Israel. He will not be delivered from Egypt. There is coming a day when the whole earth will be judged just as Egypt was judged in the Exodus. The great I am who appeared to Moses in the burning bush will come to judge. And just like he did here to Moses' hotel room in the middle of the night, he will come like a thief in the night. He will come unexpectedly. And he will put to death all of those who are not a part of his covenant family. But those who are in God's covenant family will be saved from that judgment. Not because they're perfect, but because we've been forgiven. You see, the biggest problem in all of our lives is sin. And unlike the holy God who appeared in the burning bush, who had no impurities to be consumed, we are filled with impurities and sin and shortcomings. And those impurities don't leave us neutral with God. They place us outside of his family. They make us his enemies who will be judged. So how can we be forgiven? How can we become God's son? How can we join God's family and be spared from this judgment? Do we have to be circumcised like Moses and his son? No. The New Testament says that there's now a true and better circumcision, faith in Christ. About 1,500 years after he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the great I Am took on flesh and dwelt among us the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we could not live. He never sinned. If you were to throw him into the fire of the burning bush, he would have no impurities to be consumed. And he remained pure throughout his entire life. Jesus Christ died the death that we deserve to die. He took on the fires of God's judgment, not for his sins, because he didn't have any, but for our sins. He took our impurities away from us and onto himself. And he was consumed by the fire of God's judgment when he suffered on a cross. And he died. He really died. He stopped breathing. His heart stopped beating. He was treated like he was outside of the family of God to bring us into the family of God. And because Jesus Christ had no crimes, 
He rose victoriously from the grave three days later. Nothing, not even the fires of the burning bush, not even death could stop the great I am from existing and from ruling and from reigning and from saving his people because he is the great I am and not even death could turn him into the great I was. You see, just as Zipporah declared, this boy is in the family and the bloody foreskin proves it, the risen Lord Jesus on the day of judgment will stand before every one of his people and he will say, this one is in the family and my bloody cross proves it. So as the music team comes back up, I want to ask you, what about you? Have you been marked by the blood of the Lamb? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you confessed your sin and your weakness to the great I Am and found His strength and His power and His forgiveness? There's an old hymn called Jesus Paid It All. As we close, I want to read some of the lyrics for you. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. If you're feeling convicted today by the horrors of your sin and the holiness of the great I Am, please come and talk to us today. There is forgiveness available to you. We'll have some prayer counselors in the back of the room if you want to talk with one of us about this, about how you can be forgiven of your sin and marked by the blood of the cross of Christ to be saved forever. So please come back and talk with us during the last song. The great God uses puny people like us for his purposes in the world. He is ready to save you from sin and deliver you from his power, from its power. He is ready to use you for his own glory among the nations. So come to Christ in faith today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your glories revealed in the burning bush and revealed in the book of Exodus. God, we thank you that your son is risen and reigning and that he has marked some of us by his own blood. God, we thank you for his power and we pray that you would work your power today. We pray that you would convict Christians of sin and that they would fall back on your power to fight that sin. I pray, God, that you would empower the members of Pillar DC to kill their sin and to kill their pride and to depend completely on you. God, I pray for those here that don't know you. I pray that you who made every mouth and every eye would open their eyes today to see the horrors of their sin and the glories of the great I am. God, would you work wonders today? Would you draw sinners to yourself? Would you remove every barrier? Would you show them how horrible their sin is and how wonderful your grace is and how free your grace is? Would you show them that they are not too far gone? 
And God, I pray for those who are suffering. Just like you heard the cries of the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, I pray that you would hear our cries today and that you would respond. I pray that you would comfort the suffering, that you would empower the sinning, and that you would draw all of us to our knees in submission to your risen Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.